Our featured accredited charity seal holders for this podcast are American Battlefield Trust, Dress for Success Worldwide, and Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. To find out more about these organizations and many more, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBGive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBGive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator and your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Today, my guest is Denver Frederick, and Denver is an advisor and executive coach to nonprofit CEOs. He's the host of the Business of Giving podcast, and he's an author He's authored the book, The Business of Giving, which contains new best practices for nonprofit and philanthropic leaders in an uncertain world. He has a long background working in the nonprofit space, having worked with organizations such as the United Way years ago, and he's had much experience in the development arena having served the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation as its chief development officer. So we're going to talk with Denver about his wide-ranging career and especially his book and also about the fun I'm sure he's having leading his podcast, hoping hosting his podcast for now about 11 years. Denver, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Well, thank you very much, Art. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, thank you. So Denver, let's start with the podcast. You've been doing this for 11 years. I I look at uh, our little show. We've been doing our show now for about two and a half years, and we've had a blast doing this every week. I can only imagine the stories that you've accumulated over the last 11 years doing this. You must have started podcasting at its infancy. Now it seems everyone has a podcast, but you started it in its infancy. I'm just wondering what you've learned over these years uh, from your guests and, and how it's enriched your life and the life of your listeners. Yeah, it really has enriched my life immeasurably. Um, someone asked me the other day, when are you happiest? And just more engaged in, at any other time. And I would told them it was during the podcast. And as much as I love the podcast, I think I love every bit as much preparing for the podcast. Because you know, Art, this is a lot of work. <laughs> you know, yeah. People think you show up and do a podcast, but to do a good podcast, you really have to put in a lot of hours ahead of time if you're really going to do justice both to your guests and to the listeners themselves. Now, my podcast actually started as a radio show. I was on WOR in New York back around 2010, 2011. 
And it was a, a radio program. What got me to do it? I think a couple things. I think that number one, I just was always so frustrated that some of the best, brightest people who were changing the course of our society for the better, nobody paid any attention to them. You know, we lived in a bleed or lead. If it bleeds, it leads society. And I just wondered why we focused so much on all the bad news and completely ignored a lot of the good news. And then the second piece of that was I was down at a conference in Washington, which I attended every year. And I just wondered, again, why are all these people talking just to one another and not getting outside of that bubble? So I had a friend who was a general manager of a radio station, and he said, we need to go on the air with this. So I did that for a, a number of years as a radio show and then became a full-time podcaster when COVID hit because I said, I don't think I'd really need to go into New York City and talk into a microphone that other people have been talking into. So that's when it became a, a podcast full-time. Wow, that's wonderful. Who are some of the more interesting guests you've, you've had over the years? Well, you know, I've probably had a thousand guests, so it's really hard to, to try to pick a couple of them. I thought that Carter Roberts of the World Wildlife Fund was really, really interesting. I'm a huge fan of Cheryl Dorsey of Echoing Green, Deborah Rutter, who's the head of the Kennedy Center. Just just so many. It, it, it's, it's really hard to almost choose which ones. I love Lisa Hamilton of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. But I'm really not doing justice to all the other guests that were on because I think they all bring something different to the table. And uh, you like aspects of certain guests who give you insights on on different problems and different challenges and how they, they tackle them. They sure do. And I can certainly vouch for that, uh, given the people that I've talked to over the last few years. So, Denver, tell me what got you connected or interested in the social good sector, if, if we might use that term to, to describe it? Well, to be quite honest with you, I don't know if it is as deliberate as, it, as I would have liked it to have been. I was um, out of school. I was looking for a job. And it came down to the United Way and Procter & Gamble. And I had done a lot of voluntary work in high school and in college. So it didn't become that hard a decision for me. But I have to be honest about it. I don't know if I made a commitment to stay in the voluntary sector, the nonprofit sector, way back in the 1970s. And I guess if there was a, a pivotal moment that occurred uh, during that period of time, it would have been around 1980 or so. I'd have been at the United Way for about five years. And one of the things that a lot of us did back then is that you would work there for three, four, five, six years, and then you would go and get a job in the corporate sector. And one of the reasons you were able to do that is that you had a great opportunity to work with corporate CEOs. The, the way the United Way worked back then was that one CEO would call on another CEO. So that day came, and I was in the back seat of the car with the CEO and the chairman of the board of Nabisco. And we were making calls on other you know, companies, trying to get them to run a campaign for the United Way and increase their corporate support. And I brought up the idea that I was thinking of maybe leaving the United Way and looking for a job in the corporate world. And he said he'd be very happy to help me. But in between calls, Art, we stopped at a supermarket. And this is something which he normally did, being the, the head of Nabisco. He would go into the store and he wanted to see how his product was displayed. And was it, you know, full and was it at the aisle and all those other different things. And we got back into the car and he said to me, look, I'd be more than willing to help you if you really want to make a move. But he says, I just want to tell you what we do here. And I'm very proud of what we do. We hire a lot of people. We give them the resources to, to provide for their families, send their kids to schools. We're very active in the community. 
But he said, I want to tell you, at the end of the day, what we do is we make Triscuits and Ritz crackers and Oreo cookies. And he said, before you make that jump, think twice about that and the kind of impact you want to have on your life. And um, I thought about that art. And it was really at that moment. And it's funny how these things sometimes happen that I began to say he is absolutely right. Why in the world would I ever want to leave this sector? And as it turned out, two years later, the opportunity to, to lead the Statue of Liberty campaign came along. So it was probably some of the best advice I'd ever received. Wow. I have to go back to those early days you spent at the United Way because I spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the declining number of people giving to charities mm-hmm. and how that's gone down over the years. And and one of the reasons I believe is that we have a very different approach to people giving in the workplace than we had back then. You will recall, I'm sure, back then, companies had robust campaigns. Mm -hmm. Departments competed with each other (laughs) to see who would generate the most gifts to the United Way. And it was almost unheard of that an employee working in a company would not give something out of their paychecks every week to support the United Way. And of course, later on, we got um, choices. You know, it wasn't just giving to the United Way. Generally, you could choose the organization that you wanted to give through, through the United Way. I think they called it donor choice or something like that. And so people were giving and there was some, there was some social pressure inside of the organization for people to give. I talk to young people about that today. And they are just completely shocked to hear <laughs> that anything like that really existed back then. I'm just curious, you know, if you if you have a similar thought about that or experience. Well, I think you're exactly right. It was pretty much mandatory, and in, depending on the company, some of them were a little bit lighter, had a lighter touch, and other companies, it was pretty much if you want to go anyplace in this company, you're going to be a fair share giver. I think that the the big thing that happened is that the relationship between the employer and employee changed dramatically. Because back in the days that you're talking about, I would go to work for ATT or I go to work for Union Carbide and I stay there for 35 years and I get my gold watch. And it was pretty much a contract that we had that essentially company asked me to do a couple things. They want to be a good corporate citizen. You know, they treat me well. I'm a lifer here. This is what I do to give back. But that sort of changed, uh, kind of changed when free agency came to sports and baseball, that we became a free agent nation. And mm-hmm. there wasn't that compact that the employer, employer and employee had. And now in a situation where you have maybe 1.7 job openings for every, every employee, it's, it's essentially you can't put that kind of, exert that kind of pressure on people. So the, the whole relationship changed. As you said, the the donor choose movement opened it up. People didn't want to be constricted, even to the the options that we're giving there. But mostly, I just was. Th- I, I think it's it has to do with the changing nature of the relationship between the employer and the employee. For sure. What would you also attribute to things going on today? For instance, I don't know if you track what's happening in corporate giving, but I know my dear friend uh, Angela Williams is heading United Way Worldwide, and they're doing tremendous work getting large gifts from people who actually have 
lots of resources to to put to causes and they're doing a lot of work leading in communities you know which is kind of a remarkable and i think reasonable approach for them to take in community change but i don't know if you have your own observations about corporate giving in general and employee giving in particular I think organizations like the United Way that were on the front lines of that and perhaps got most adversely impacted by this changing nature of the relationship and the payroll deduction are the ones also to lead the innovation and say, wow, you know, we have basically had our major source of revenue cut off. We need to reimagine how we are going to um, lead and how we're going to interact. And um, Angela Williams would have to be one of my very favorite people as well. And that's what the United Way has done. Innovation is a, is put upon us. So we've seen a lot of the innovation that's happened since the pandemic. We sometimes don't innovate of our own accord. We innovate in a crisis or we innovate when things that we've been doing for a long time aren't working. And the United Way has had that, I believe, in their DNA right from the very outset. And they have done a nice pivot, a lot of work to do, probably a little bit of an uneven pivot. Some communities, I think, are a bit more enlightened than other communities. But overall, I think they've done a, a wonderful job. Great. Now, your book, The Business of Giving, has numbers of lots of tips and advice for philanthropic leaders. Tell us about the book, what got you focused on producing it, and what are some of the reviews that you're getting from people who've had a chance to read it? The book really, I think, came out of conversations very much along the lines that you do, Art. I've had with guests on the show, and they were actually the conversations that occurred either before or after the interview. And these leaders are being challenged. There was a whole new set of problems that came up during the pandemic. And they were asking me about what other people were doing or what other people were thinking. And I think it was a combination, Art, of people looking for, for new ideas, for places that, where they were stuck within their own organization. But even more than that, I think they were looking for some validation for what they were already doing. They had these ideas, but they were not necessarily pushing ahead as aggressively as they might because they were a little unsure as to whether they were it was right. Are they the only one doing this? And I think it it became more acute because I think the, the, the natural lines of communication were cut off during the pandemic. So they weren't going to the conferences and seeing their friends and colleagues the way they once did. So they kept on asking me, what are people doing about DEI? How is leadership changing? How are people trying to scale? What is this about systems change, et cetera, et cetera? So that was really the impetus for me is that it seemed that leaders within nonprofit organizations were looking for a guidebook and were insatiably curious as to what were some of the best ideas were and what were their counterparts doing at other organizations to help guide them and lead them in terms of what they needed to do in their own organization. I see a phrase you use here. Could your organization use some decision hygiene? Mm-hmm. Explain that. That's a really interesting uh, way to think about decision making. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of pieces to decision making. I, I think that one of the things that I've observed, and if it's okay, let me just say, answer that somewhat broadly. On decision making, I've always looked, and maybe you've, you've looked at it the same way, there are two-door decisions and there are one-door decisions. And two-door decisions at least in my mind, I think of a restaurant and I think of the entrance into the kitchen. And you always have that one door where the waiters and waitresses would go through to get into the kitchen and that other door where they would leave the kitchen so we didn't have food and plates flying all over the place. Most of the decisions that nonprofit leaders make are two-door decisions, which means you can go through that one door, see what's on the other side of that door, 
and very easily pivot and go out the other door. These decisions are quick and fast, but they do two things. They create movement in the organization, and there's a tremendous amount of learning that goes on. I think that most nonprofit leaders were probably taking too much time and making more, the time was being uh, allotted for one-door decisions. One-door decisions are those kinds of decisions which you really have to be thoughtful about because they're not that easy to just turn around and walk out the other door. Maybe hiring a CEO would be an example of that. So there was a tremendous increase in the speed of decision-making that I saw nonprofit leaders make during the pandemic. So in terms of decision hygiene specifically, I believe the key to making those good decisions and making those quick decisions is really having the leader of an organization define success. And you don't see that often enough where you can go to anybody in the organization and have them all agree what the definition of success is. It has to be clear. It has to be simple. It has to be straightforward. But once you have a clear definition of success, you can make decisions far more easily as to whether this action is going to take you closer to success or whether it's not going to take you closer to success. I think another thing is that you need to get a lot of independent judgment. So you want to get a lot of people involved, get all those different judgments involved to kind of blunt your own biases that you may may have. You also want to disaggregate the decision. Sometimes we look at a situation and we say, hey, that's good or that's bad. You need to break it down into its component parts and grade each of those component parts on their own. And that compositively will give you the very best decision. I think that there's a lot to be said about the time of day you make the decision. If you look at doctors, very often they're going to advise a treatment plan at 9.30 in the morning and maybe a prescription at four o'clock in the afternoon. So in terms of decision hygiene, going back and looking at the same decision at a different time of the day can sometimes help help uh, get a better decision. I think another thing in decision hygiene is that you as a leader don't want to tip your mitt. You really want to go in there and ask the people on your team what they think without allowing them to know where you're coming from. If I were to come into you, Art, and say that we are thinking about expanding our program to young adults, we've reviewed it with the board, we've had an independent consultant come in, and it all looks really good and the right thing to do, but hey, you know, I want you guys to weigh in. <laughs> That's not exactly the way you need to make a decision. You need to do it. You need to do it far more independently and get them to weigh in or write down their answers even before you ask. So I think disaggregation. And, and the last thing I'll say about this is that I have found that asking people for probabilities gets you much closer to a good decision than a bad decision. So if you're my boss, Art, and you say to me, are we going to make our first quarter goal March 31st? Are we going to hit our number? You're my boss, Art. I'm going to say yes. If you were to say to me, Denver, what's the probability that we're going to hit our goal at the end of the first quarter? I might say eh, about 80%. And you say 80%. What's that 20% you're worrying about? And it's essentially in that gray where you get the gold in terms of what the problems might be. The other thing that it does, too, is it creates a much more even share of voice, because as a boss, we're talking a lot more than we think uh, than we think we are. We think we're talking 60 percent of the time. We're talking 90 percent of the time. But when you ask somebody a probability, you're going to really get into the weeds in terms of what the problems are. And you'll get a much more balanced conversation between the two of you, which will ultimately lead to a better decision. 
I love all of that. And it gets me to thinking about this notion of distributed leadership or distributed decision-making where the leaders, of course, don't, we don't shy away from decision-making, but we're certainly using our teams and our people who we trust and believe in to make decisions on their own when possible and to inform us of their ideas and thoughts when we are making those decisions too. And I just think in a world where things seem to be moving so much faster and we have to make many more decisions than maybe ever before because of that, we don't want to be bottlenecks as leaders, right? We don't want to have everything have to flow through us for every decision. We want to empower people to to make those decisions when it's appropriate and to trust them by giving them information about parameters that make sense and an understanding of our culture so that the decisions are in line with mission and goals. So I love uh, everything you're saying here. And I agree with everything you just said. That is absolutely on point. And to the point of leaders, I actually think that what I've seen, and maybe you've observed the same thing, leaders are becoming more facilitators. Yes. And they are leaders in the classic way. And essentially what they're doing is they're leading these conversations. They're making sure that everybody's participating in these conversations. They're connecting dots from these conversations. If there's conflict, they're bringing that conflict to the fore. Constructive conflict, but that's where you get the best decisions coming. So I think this facilitative leadership is going to be one of the things that's going to come out of this pandemic. And it's already evident in a lot of organizations that I talk to. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about relative to your book is this notion that people need to reduce the noise and make better decisions immediately. And this takes me back to another colleague of mine from the Institute for the Future, a gentleman by the name of Bob Johansson. Mm -hmm. And Bob, as a futurist, has always been one to say, we should think 10 years out as we're making decisions or as we're planning. Because if we just think about the next two years, it's going to be very noisy and very messy. And sometimes you can make better decisions about what you want to do today when you think further out. Because things get more clear, (laughs) believe Mm -hmm. it or not. Big things, anyway, get more clear the further you look out. So an example of that might be if you're in the transportation world, and you're not factoring in electronic cars becoming the predominant vehicle on the road in 10 years, then you're going to miss out on what's happening with electronic cars in terms of what you should be doing today. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. We won't see 50% electronic cars in two years, but we should be doing some things to prepare for that now so that when that time comes, we're ready, right? Right. So, you know, another example could be climate change. We yeah, have a climate idea where good. the climate is heading, but we don't know whether it's going to rain tomorrow or not. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think, you know, you're so right in helping us to get oriented this way. And again, I just want to um, mention to anyone listening, the book is called The Business of Giving. And uh, it's a great I think, opportunity for those of us who want to essentially validate maybe the way we've been going about things, particularly if we're focused more on empowering 
the people around us to help us with decision making. And as you say, to be more facilitative leaders. I love your point, Art, about thinking out 10 years, because if you ask a lot of people to think out for the next year or two, they are going to take the world as it is and they are going to extrapolate it. So if we're helping a thousand people and a year from now, it's going to be 1200 and two years, it's going to be 1500. We basically don't think the world is going to change that much. So our futuristic thinking over the next several years is going to take exactly what we're doing today and then just make it bigger. When you go out 10 years, Mm -hmm. you're in a completely different space. You have to cut off from exactly what the world is like now and think of what the world is going to be a decade from now. And then start working backwards. Start working back. It's sort of, uh, I know a number of groups that do this, Education Superhighway did it, in terms of what they called milestone fundraising. So they began to think about where they wanted to be in 10 years. And what they set out to do was to have broadband internet in every single public school. They set out to do this in 2010 and completed it by 2020. But they looked at 2020 and then they said, okay, where do we need to be in 2017? And where do we need to be in 2015? And they worked backwards from there. And I think that that is a really good way for a leader to think. They have to be ambidextrous. They have to look about what's happening today and, and what the organization needs to do to survive and, and, and meet payroll and, and help people. But if they are not putting 15 to 20% of their time thinking about what the world is going to be 20 years from now and what their role is going to be in it, they're not going to be nearly as effective as they otherwise might be. Yeah. Well, I want to go back just briefly to what we discussed in the early part of our interview about you making a decision to enter the nonprofit sector and to stay in it and to sort of set you up as an example for others. How should young people today be processing a decision for where to work and what sector to work in and what they want to do with their lives? You know, I really think that's a, a very hard decision for young people to make because unlike perhaps during most of our careers, we could foresee what the future was going to be. And it was going to, again, extrapolate from what the current situation was, but a doctor would be a doctor and a lawyer would be a lawyer and so on down the line. It's really hard for a young person to know what it's going to, you know, we got, you know, chat GPT. Everything is changing in such a fast pace that you don't even know the job that you train for is going to exist 5, 10, or 15 years from now. So I, I empathize in terms of, of how to think about it, but that then really gets back to having even a greater emphasis on your values and who you want to be as a person and what are going to be those core values that are going to define you as, as the individual you want to be in terms of the relationships you have, the contributions you make to society, and do things that become a constant and then make every decision on your career based on those values, because it's too hard to project what the career opportunities may or may not be, but the values will be timeless. And that is what I think a young person has to do more than even we had to do because of the changing nature of work and the whole changing nature of society and the way the world uh, operates. So well said. Well, I appreciate you joining me on the show today, Denver, and I want to just say to our listeners, 
You might want to check out Denver's podcast as well. It's called the Business of Giving podcast. And I know you're going to get lots of important information that can help you with your thoughts around giving. And if you're a nonprofit leader, of course, you're going to hear from some other great leaders in our sector who are doing great work. Denver, thank you for joining the show. Well, thank you, Art. I love your uh, podcast as well. You're a wonderful host and you bring out the best in your guests. And it was a real, as I said, pleasure and honor to be on with you. And to all of our listeners, if this is the first time you've checked in, I hope you'll subscribe to our podcast and become a regular listener. And if you want to make a donation to the show, you can do that also by going to givegive.org and you can make a donation to the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.